0: Welcome to episode number two of Racing Through Time NASCAR Retrospective Podcast, covering the entire 1986 NASCAR Winston Cup season. I am your host, Ricky Wittenberg, along with Andy Waddell. And Andy, we had a pretty long sabbatical because of some uh, personal issues, but we released episode one last week, and it got a really good break. Positive feedback across the board. So, uh, we decided to keep going with this endeavor. And we are here to talk about race number two at Richmond. How are you doing today? I'm all jacked up on Mountain Dew and coffee. So, I'm ready
1: to get this thing started.
0: All right. So, you know, this group, this project, you can find us in several places. Uh, if you go to Racing Through Time, on Facebook, you can find our group there. Join it, we will be posting all the episodes there, and we'll also re- post a lot of the news articles that we read and some that we don't read. Will be on that page. You can also follow me on Twitter at O-P-R Word. That's OPRWord. That's O P R W O R D. And you can now find us on Apple Podcasts, uh, iTunes, Stitcher. SoundCloud and Google Play Music, so pretty much wherever you can find your favorite podcasts, we should uh, we should have them there. We will put the links in the description on the web pages. That way, you can find the podcast pretty easily from there. So, we are coming out of Daytona now, and it's been about a year since we recorded it. It seems like. <laughs> But, you know, we've listened to the episode back and, uh, you know, da- uh, Jeff Bodine takes home the Daytona 500 and a race that was really weird. It was a, it wasn't a bad race. It wasn't a good race. It was kind of in between, but it was very interesting. And we had a lot of fun with some of the announcers, uh, comments during that race. <laughs> so, uh, especially
1: there were a lot of things said then that you can't get away with today.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll touch on a little bit of that. So before we get into Richmond, what we're going to try to do every week is we've sourced newspaper articles uh, thanks to the glorious technology of the internet, and we're going back to 1986, and what we try to do is cover week to week between the races to see if there's anything interesting that happens, some sound bites. It's not like now. Somebody now in 20 years could just read everybody's tweets and there's so much information out there. If you tried to do an old school NASCAR podcast in 20 years, you'd have so much information. You, I don't even know if you know where to start.
1: Oh, you'd have a plethora of stuff to go back to. You'd have tweets and emails and Facebook and all kinds of sources.
0: Yeah, so it, it is a little bit of digging, which is kind of fun to go back and... Even when you're looking at these old newspaper articles, seeing the the other sports stories and other stories going on that week, some of these old ads in the papers is pretty cool. So, what we're going to do this week is we'll we'll hit a couple of um couple of newspaper articles and then we'll get into the race because this is a race definitely worth delving into this week. Uh, it might be. I mean, honestly, you know, I grew up, we both grew up in the 80s and were NASCAR fans, but it's not like I've went back and watched all these races hundreds of times. With the technology we got now in YouTube over the last few years, uh, very thankful for some of these people that's uploaded these old races and preserved them uh, so everybody can see what, what it was like in the old days because we didn't have VCRs or we wasn't we didn't have a vcr until 1987 or no you know they they cost a lot of money and even then the tapes and you know 35 year old tapes now they don't hold up well so i'm, I'm glad some of these races are archived now on youtube um we'll talk about some technical issues here in a little bit but what we're going to do right now is uh, talk about some newspaper articles that i thought was fairly interesting i'm going to read some some blurbs and me and Andy will discuss, and then we'll go straight into the uh, Richmond race. The first article I want to talk about is Bobby Allison. Uh, The article's title is, Allison looks for winning numbers at the Richmond race. This article was from the Newport News, Virginia, Daily Press on February the 21st, 1986. So this is a quote from Bobby. We know what made the engine bearings burn out down there, he said here Thursday. It won't happen again. It had to do with a faulty oil temperature gauge. We were an unknown quantity until Daytona, but I think we've proved that we can be a competitive team. We qualified good, ran second in the 125, and looked strong in the 500. The 500 itself was a bittersweet experience, but we made progress during the week. Now if we can just make more progress this weekend. Allison's last short track wins were at Richmond in February and September of 83. His last NASCAR pole came there in September of 82, but he hasn't been among the leaders in any Richmond races run since 83. Allison couldn't resist a poke at NASCAR for not approving the use of an air dam under the grill of the Buick LeSabres. The dam would keep air from rushing under the car and upsetting the handling. He said several GM rivals campaigned against the dam, even though NASCAR earlier approved the radical 1986 Pontiac and Chevrolet models. That campaign was effective, Allison said, especially after I was second in the 125-miler. NASCAR was caught by surprise and said they wanted to think about it. Then they said I ran too good, and that if my car was second without the dam, why give it to me? They said that would make me too fast. That's when I knew that I had to grin and bear it. Allison said that he's seen just one new Chevrolet Monte Carlo SS model on the street, and that was in New York. It was obviously a handmade car, just for display. Still, NASCAR lets them race. I've never seen a real one on the street. And the Pontiacs are really radical. The street versions you saw in Daytona Beach weren't legal for sale because they had plexiglass rear windows. I understand, though, GM is going to build 15 legal ones for sale. Okay, Andy. We are 1986. And honest to God, this is the beginning of all this aero crap in NASCAR. Right, right there, it's... until 1986 it was a little bit more more like a street car i mean it wasn't a street car but it was a little more like a street car and then in 86 all the manufacturers get cute and decide that they can build just a few cars that to try to make the nascar cars better but they're really not going to be street cars
1: yeah, it's, it's kind of like a repeat of history, like with Petty and the car with the big fan he had. You know, they only made enough for it to count for NASCAR. Well, here it looks like they was trying to get by with the same
0: thing. You know, hey, yeah,
1: here's one. See, look over here. Yeah, okay, we can race them. Let's go.
0: Yeah, so that's the beginning of that. Bobby Allison was never one to mince his words, and he wasn't too happy. And uh, he was always one of the more outspoken people here in NASCAR. So Did they ever find him for saying something like that, though? That's what I always wondered. I mean, probably. I, I don't know his fine history, but I'm sure he probably did catch it a time or two because of uh, some things that he may have said. I know he probably shouldn't have stopped in the infield in Daytona after Donnie and Kel wrecked because he, he got, he got um, a, a little more... Well, no, actually, wait a minute. No, he stopped, and Kale got a little more than he bargained for. I don't want to tell that story wrong. Don, <laughs> no, was... yeah. Don't mess that up. We don't want them coming after us. No, no, Alabama. You G- know, a uh, true story before I uh, get off tangent here. I did. I had one opportunity to go to Talladega in uh, about 10 years ago. My father-in-law is a ARCA driver, and uh, we went to the Talladega short track after the ARCA race, Uh, or before whatever we went to the talladega short track i think it was that night after the arca race and they had a super late model race and one of the original alabama gang members red farmer was still racing i mean my god i think he's still racing and he was he had to be close to 80 then and i'm just joking i'm in the stands and i said my god it's the flying fossil i was kidding it was a joke um i really like red farmer but i almost caught an ass whipping At Talladega because of, uh, you don't, you don't insult the Alabama gang in, in Alabama. I'll tell you that much right now.
1: Lord, no, you know, most of them's all kin down there. You can't do that.
0: Yeah. So, um, anyway, that's the article from Bobby Allison. We'll, we'll have that one linked up. Here is an article, uh, discussing some more of the arrow stuff. This is Bill Gassaway talking. He was NASCAR's competition director from uh, the Newport News uh, Daily Press. This is a article from Saturday. So, you've never seen an 86 Pontiac Grand Prix 2 Plus 2 cruising down Mercury Boulevard, but didn't Richard Petty wreck one last weekend at Daytona? And you still haven't seen a new Chevy Monte Carlo SS tooling around Jefferson Avenue, but didn't Jeff Bodine drive one into Victory Lane at Daytona? And say, didn't NASCAR once say... Detroit had to make 500 of a particular model to be raced before it could be raced. Yes, yes, and yes. But all that has changed, especially the part about 500 models being available before it can be raced. With qualifying for Saturday's late model 200 and Sunday's Miller High Life 400 at the Richmond Fairgrounds postponed because of yucky weather, the garage area talk turned to the new sloped-back Pontiacs and Chevys that appeared last weekend at Daytona. Except for his few special issues, nobody's ever seen either model on the street or in a showroom. While that is some racers upset, NASCAR executive Bill Gasaway sees nothing wrong with it. Friday, he explained why. Years ago, Detroit brought out its next year models in August and September. That gave our racers plenty of time to select what they wanted for the next season. They had three or four months to get their cars ready. But several years ago, Detroit began holding its new models until November and December. Can you imagine our teams waiting until then to pick up the car they want to race? Because of that, NASCAR dropped the 500 production rule. We simply announced what models would be legal, but we do make sure the legal cars were going to be mass produced for street use. Gazaway said before NASCAR approved the 86 Pontiacs and Chevys, it got Detroit's assurance that it would soon start producing the cars for public sale. The new Buick Sabres and Oldsmobile Deltas are already available for public sale. We're not worried at this point how many or when they'll make them. Frankly, both models will be hard to find at first, but they'll eventually be on the streets. If the dealers can sell them, that is. So, there's another little twist to that uh, story with Gassaway also talking about the, the new car models and that the, i guess early in the season that's one of the bigger points here in nascar yeah you know
1: he way he tiptoed around that he ought to become a politician if he didn't because he, he danced all around that without stepping on there and giving a straight answer
0: yeah i mean at the same time what are you going to say well i mean yeah, Detroit said they're going to give us these cars, but my God, we don't really know. But we we got a lot of money from Chevy and uh, and Buick to say that it's going to be okay, and and since they gave me a twenty thousand dollar bonus, I think it's going to be okay.
1: Yeah, no. and you know I'll pay you back at twenty next Thursday, and I've never seen this woman before in my life. You know, just a few more.
0: Now, now I'm honestly, we're not saying Casaway took a bribe. It's just. I mean, there there is some gray areas there, though, where NASCAR definitely had to be careful, and they were tiptoeing around that quite a bit. So there was another article that came out this week that I'm not going to read the full article in the backstory, but you want to check out something really interesting. Look at the Coors Tour story about the demise of that series at the end of 85, what happened. NASCAR coming in and strong-arming them in early 86, and... Then they don't even have a series in 86. And it, The end of 85 and all of what happened killed the series. And there was they were in court until the late 80s. And the champion changed hands two or three times because of the court system. The only reason I bring this up is eventually the court basically determined that NASCAR is a sanctioning body. And what NASCAR says goes. And the courts can't interfere. Could you imagine in today's litigious society if we decided that it was okay for any, you know, um, Eric Almirola gets planted into the wall on the last lap of the Daytona 500 last year or a couple years ago, whenever that happened, and he, he gets wrecked out for the win. What if he takes NASCAR to court saying, well, he should have won the Daytona 500. If he wouldn't have got wrecked, he would be the winner. This is the same kind of situation and you do not want the court system involved in NASCAR at all.
1: No, if at all possible, you do not want the court system involved in any proceedings in your life.
0: Exactly. So, uh, check out the core story. We'll link the articles on our Facebook page. Um, Very interesting with with that. And now, we will jump into the Richmond race. A little bit about the, the background of the track first. The current configuration dates back from 1988, so obviously this configuration we're watching the race on, which is awesome, is no longer available. Richmond was a dirt oval in the early days, originally known as the Atlantic Rural Exposition Fairgrounds. The circuit held its first race in 1946 as a half-mile dirt track, set within the grounds of the Virginia State Fairgrounds, otherwise known as Strawberry Hill, The circuit soon rose to prominence, gaining its first NASCAR event in 1953. In 1955, Paul Sawyer and legendary racer Joe Weatherly acquired the property, which was then known more simply as the Atlantic Rural Fairgrounds. The circuit continued to host NASCAR Grand National events during the 50s and 60s with Joe Weatherly among the winners at his own track. The Oval was an early pioneer of night racing with a special Tuesday night race held under temporary lots in 1964. That's pretty cool. In 1967, the course changed its name, adopting the title of Virginia State Fairgrounds. However, it soon changed again when the track was paved midway through 1968, becoming the Richmond Fairgrounds Raceway for the start of the 1969 season. The paved course was remeasured in 1970 and found to be a little longer than a half mile at 0.542. Race distances continued as before, though, despite the discrepancy. By now, the track had two established NASCAR events, one in the spring and the other in the autumn. Due to the close proximity to Richmond metropolitan area, the races were almost always complete sellouts. The original track closed on February the 21st, 1988, and the facility was enlarged to the current three-fourths mile oval, which reopened on September the 10th, 1988. Perhaps in an effort to distance the track from the fairgrounds, the name was changed upon re- reopening, becoming Richmond International Raceway. So that's where we're at. Same same place, different track. But uh, I, I for one, can say I really liked the fairgrounds configuration a lot.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this was right around the time when they start going toward every track is more or less the same. The only difference is whether it's a mile and a half or a half mile or, you know, this one had a unique feel to it. And you can just look at it and you'll see if you watch the video.
0: Oh yeah, definitely watch the race. We'll link the race um, in the Facebook post, YouTube post, or the, uh, we'll link the YouTube video in the Facebook post, as well as our Twitter page. So right into the race, uh, technical issue first. Any races, there's going to be a lot of these races, unfortunately, in the older days, That may not have the best quality audio, um, video, not as good, or we'll have shortened races. This is one of the races where the, you can get by with it. I mean, it sounds okay, but as far as us playing clips back on the show, this was one that was a little more challenging. The audio just doesn't translate real well when you try to record and pull it back out. So we are going to have a few clips that I have been able to pull together. But um, a lot of the races will have more clips when we have better audio, basically. So that's where we're at with that. The first thing I notice, Andy, we're on pit road. And before they ever even touch the track, to me, it looks almost like a dirt track. I don't know if it's... The optics or what, but I swear to God, it looks like somebody has just mowed the infield and threw about (laughs) 18 tons of grass out onto the track, and it's dirt and grass all over the track before they ever even go out. And the part
1: I kept looking for, and I never did get a good view of it, I was wondering the whole time if... Maybe like the tow trucks and all that stuff was parked in the mud and it you know, they tracked it out there or like you said, it looks identical to somebody that's mowed their yard and blew it out into the road. I mean honestly it's identical to it.
0: That's exactly what it looks like. So they're sitting on Pit Road. Um it's cold in Richmond this day. Richmond as the second race on the schedule, early February nineteen eighty-six it was about 45 degrees outside, so that would not help the traction of the cars or the fans in the stands either. But at least the fans in the stands probably stayed warm with how much uh, excitement there was on the track. Jimmy Spencer would have been proud. He definitely would have. So we will go to our first clip, hopefully, that will play good here. Um, about this, This is coming up to the start of the race. Out
2: here and run. Slick, just playing slick," said Bill Elliott, who got sideways out here trying to qualify. He said, "I have driven on ice. It wasn't that slick." And Richard Petty said, "All I wanted to do was bring the car back, and if I couldn't do that, I wanted to find some soft place to land. I scared myself out there." And Darrell Waltrip, about trying to qualify yesterday, said. It was the stupidest thing NASCAR's ever done. It's the worst I've ever seen, trying to make a man qualify in the rain. Heck, you can't even see out there. A lot of controversy, and then they couldn't get the last 13 cars in, and so they came out and used this new system with the top 18 cars coming through points after race one at Daytona, then the two winners from last year, uh, that would be the Earnhardt car and Bonnet, the rest were by postmark. Here we come, down for a start. Bodine, who was the quickest in practice, unofficially, on the pole. Terry Labonte, right beside it, ready for the start of the Richmond 400, live here on the Superstation.
0: Okay, so there we are. We get the start of the race, but not before we had some interesting, apparently, trepidation in qualifying the day before. And... In, the, in one of the breakaway segments of Dave Despain, later in the race, he shows some of the qualifying from the sportsman race the day before, and there was three or four cars just spun out, and I, there's a couple of times you can see them kicking up water trails as they spin, so I don't know what the deal was, but NASCAR's race cars, do not work very well in the rain on slick tires.
1: No, there's a reason you have groove tires for dirt and or all terrain stuff. Slick tires not no good.
0: So I'm not sure exactly what happened, but we definitely had some tra- track problems before the during qualifying the day before. start, so we start by points. Bodine starts on the pole. Terry Labonte second. Bodine gets the jump. Bobby Hillen in third is holding up a group of cars early in the race. We get an in car camera of Harry Gantt. He has no gloves on, and it's just a sign of the times. I mean, you can see that, that big ring on Gantt's finger working that wheel. Can you? I mean, as much as they were turning back and forth and really sawing at those cars to drive a, a stock car at a track like Richmond 400 laps with no gloves, the man had to have some really, really calloused hands. Yeah,
1: you, you could have probably cut him with a switchblade across the palm and never even brought blood. Probably.
0: Um, so we get a big mess on lap eight. Trevor Boys, Buddy Arrington, and Kirk Bryant all, all wadded up on lap eight, and that's going to be an early indicator of some things going on here in the race. We get a restart, and as soon as we restart, Lake Speed slams into the wall after getting dumped by Ricky Rudd. And, uh, then Ken Squire, and, go ahead.
1: And there was something I noticed here, like you say, sign of the times or you forget about it, I guess. But I was wondering if the crew was, you know, when they went in for the pits, if the crew was wearing fireproof blue jeans, because every one of them had blue jeans and some kind of a plastic jacket. On.
0: Oh yeah. Not, uh, not very safety oriented in 1986. Also, as we mentioned during Daytona, no pit road speed limits, so they come screaming down. Cars tore all to pieces. Flat tire comes screech, meeting this guy that's got blue jeans on and they're ripped. Comes flying down pit road hundred miles an hour at Richmond, sliding through all the dirt and mud. I mean, that just sounds like a sounds like a good time to me. I, I would, yeah,
1: those gentlemen had to be having like heavy duty industrial strength cups.
0: They must have had barrels, sir, barrels. Yes. So we have Ken Squire lets us know that Jeff Bodine had been signing autographs at Kmart in Daytona from 8.30 to 10 o'clock after his 500 win. And I don't know what sounds more 1986 than uh, going to the Kmart to sign autographs after you win the Daytona 500.
1: Hey, you got to go to a fancy place, brother.
0: That's right. So, we get the restart, and then we have this. Walker is in the wall.
2: Five, six, seven, eight. Eight automobiles have tangled up, and right where he crashed a year ago, there you see Bill Elliott's number nine impaled. The number nine of Elliott right up on the fence. He's sitting on top of the guardrail. Someone must have blown an engine up there and got oil all over the racetrack. Well, there you can see he has the window net down, and Earnhardt continues to work on cleaning off the windshield of car number three. Richard, how much of it is the track surface and how much of it is racing out there right now with these crashes? Well, somebody blew an engine and they wasn't no help. It would have made no difference what happened in the circumstances when they all crashed.
0: Okay, so there, there we have it. <laughs> we have a big mess. Bill Elliott's up on top of the wall. I mean, this was a, for a half a mile track, I don't know how you can crash as many cars as they crashed right there, but there was 10 cars that re- like legitimately wrecked in that crash.
1: And this is just a sign of what's to come. You are gonna, if you watch this race, you're gonna see cars get wrecked and get stuck in some of the weirdest situations. Compared to what we have today, like Bill, he gets out of the car. It's up on on the fence, not against the fence or in the fence. He's on the fence.
0: Yes, he's on top of the fence. And there's several other cars that has just tore all to crap in that race. I mean, Daryl Waltrip spins out. and He hits the wall really hard, and that's what gets him the lap down early in the race. Was this crash and? i mean bobby allison was in it there was a Ron bouchard there's several cars in this wreck that really hurt him i think ricky rudd and harry gantt was also both in this crash it just this was kind of like daytona where the attrition hurts the quality of the race because we're what 20 laps into the race and you've got i, I don't know five or six cars I think you- that maybe could win the race that's wrecked basically yeah, I think they
1: said at this point, like, 18 cars was already, had some kind of body damage, and we ain't even a quarter of the way through.
0: Well, no, I mean, we're not even, yeah, we're not even, like, 25, 30 laps into this race, and we didn't start 40, well, we did, We now we only start 36 or 38 again, but I think they only started 31 or 32 cars for this race, <laughs> so that's, over half the field is already wrecked.
1: And then Sachs about hit the pickup truck that was going around picking up debris. That, I thought he was going to pull a Juan Pablo.
0: Yeah, blow up the um, the, the truck coming around. So, all these, the replays are not great that shows what happened. You can't really tell. It's picks it up in progress. Waltrip's already in the wall. Elliot goes up on top of the wall. Bouchard goes to the garage. Um, 17 car was wrecked. That's Phil Parsons, I believe. The, then we get Del Earnhardt and strapping a leaning. This is one of the more iconic things that you'll still see on Twitter on a throwback Thursday. The man gets out of his car, basically, and whops his windshield as he is going, I don't know, 50 miles an hour down the straightaway. He is completely, fully out of his car, whopping the windshield.
1: And the bad part is they don't catch the the initial, you know, you hear him say he's out of the car wiping his windshield, and you're like, what? And by the time they get to it, he's just kind of got his head and shoulders out. But when the car comes around, you can see he has wiped almost half of the windshield off. So how far was he out before the camera actually caught him? There's
0: There are clips and uh, video clips out there on YouTube that shows how far out of the car he was, and... He was out of the car. I mean, his feet were basically both... He was out of the car going around. I don't know how it was. It was It was impressive, I'll say that. And I pretty much can guarantee you, if anybody tried to do that now, they would uh, they would be parked for the remainder of the day.
1: Uh, you think the band hammer would come down, huh?
0: No doubt about that. So, they're... Oh, yes, in the garage, we get this. There is a guy swinging his Mexican speed wrench, as Chris (laughs) Potomacke would call it, at the front end of Ron Bouchard's car. And I swear to God, he missed him by about a half of, I don't know, six inches. And the guy jerks like, what in the world? (laughs) It was, uh, seriously, you watch that. Watch the guy swinging the sledgehammer with no regard for human life. Yes,
1: that man needs to teach Triple H how to swing a sledgehammer.
0: Something. It was crazy. So, yeah, we're only 25 laps in. Completely out of the race are the number six, the number nine, the 98, the 17, and the 15. We would have had an interview with Tim Richmond. He's in the garage, um, but the audio is not good for that. But 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 if you get a chance, you've got to listen to him.
1: That man... He was ahead of his time by so many years. All the rest of them are still kind of the good old boy, kind of bashful type of interview, and he is just so smooth with it.
0: Oh, God, he is so well-spoken. I mean, very, just just, he don't get rattled. That's the one thing about Tim Richmond. I mean, maybe we'll see him get rattled in this 1986 season sometime, but I think that's one of the reasons Earnhardt never really – he didn't – He loved Tim Richmond because one of the people that – Tim Richmond was not – I mean, Earnhardt could not push around Tim Richmond. Tim Richmond wasn't – he did not get shaken by anybody. I I mean, honestly, he he was the only guy that could really, as far as just flat out wheel a car, go toe-to-toe with Dale Earnhardt in that time period. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and that's one of those things, you know, which you know everybody knows what happens later on. If that doesn't happen to Richmond, I don't know that Earnhardt ties Petty. I don't
0: think he does. I mean, people said Richmond and I'm, too. And I'm one of the
1: biggest Earnhardt fans you'll ever meet in your life. But, I mean, truth truth. He was that good.
0: Yeah, so we're back to Green. Bodine's in the lead. Labonte, Bobby Hillen, Earnhardt. Earnhardt, sm- he just knocks Hillen out of the way. Like, I don't have time for you. So smartly just moves up out of the way and says, no, thank you. I'll just let you go. Trevor Boys, I, he was one of the people they said was out of the race. I'm not sure how he was it, but now he's back on the track. He's smoking all over the place. He's back in the pits. Davey Allison's driving the 95 car. He spins out, no caution. Uh, we get to lap 43, some laps. Finally, we click off a few laps without a yellow flag. The first... 30 laps just basically was ran under caution. Richard Petty goes back out on the track. Uh, Benny Parsons thinks that Petty may, they may be a sub in the car, which we find out there's not. Petty is driving it. But Squire, Ken Squire said something I thought was pretty interesting right here, Andy. We talked about this in our Daytona preview show. He said Petty come out with his arm wrapped up today because he had that dislocated shoulder. But he also said, and Tim Richmond walked out with a cane. Now yeah. we we know we know from historical records and what we looked up that he has no idea that he's like sick sick until after the banquet in eighty six. He's not diagnosed with AIDS until either right after Christmas in eighty six or early eighty seven. But he comes out with a cane at they, I mean at uh, here at Richmond. Now I don't. He said cane maybe. He was a little banged up at Richmond, tweaked his ankle or something. But that just that that kind of struck me as a little weird.
1: Yeah, because that's one of the things. Especially being Richmond, you never know if he was actually hurt or if he was just doing like a pimp cane thing. you know, what kind of cane did he have? That's what yeah, I
0: want to know. I don't know. I just thought it was it was weird that uh, he came out of a cane. So. We go a few more laps. Bodine catches up some lap traffic. Earnhardt's on his bumper. Earnhardt goes in the grass trying to pass Bodine. Now at Richmond, if you didn't want somebody to pass you, even if they were faster, you could really make a, it very hard to for somebody to pass you at Richmond because there was real there was one lane. It was right against the bottom. But these guys kind of figured out if you you could diamond it. And keep going lower and lower out of the turn, and you could almost get beside of somebody out of a turn if you could turn it down enough. And what they were doing is they was hitting the grass coming out of the turns, yeah. trying to get under people, and it was awesome because those they, was, they yeah. really was dirt tracking it,
1: honestly. <laughs> yeah by that point there was because i mean they were throwing mud and stuff up on the track and like you say all you had to do at this track was to get below somebody but if you had a good patient driver he just keeping on the bottom and you had to move him
0: yeah you didn't have a choice so we uh this oh god i'm gonna this is gonna really bother (laughs) me we get a shot of the crowd as Earnhardt is beating on bodine more on that later Earnhardt then gets in the wow. grass again. <laughs> yes. Earnhardt gets in the grass again and almost spins out uh, lap 53 trying to get under Bodine. Kirk Bryant slams into the wall somewhere around this point, and we have caution number three. I don't know this poor guy, but he reminds me a lot of a couple of the guys that didn't make it in NASCAR. He, he wrecked a couple of times at Daytona, and I think he's already wrecked about seven times at Richmond in the first 50 laps somehow. He may just have really bad luck, but he is uh, he is snake-bitten. So all the leaders pit under caution. And Dave Marcus in the Helen Ray special is in the lead. Waltrip and Lake Speed get a lap back. Waltrip was more than one lap down. Jimmy Means is in second, and Bobby Allison in third. So on the restart, that's kind of—it's kind of crazy. You have Dave Marcus, Jimmy Means. Up front with Earnhardt and Bodine, who's obviously got the fastest cars early in the race, trying to move back through the field, and uh, Marcus drops off the pace in a few laps with a flat tire, and Jimmy Means gets in the lead, and he he leads a few laps. Andy, uh, the old Jimmy Smut Means, one of the Alabama gang.
1: Yeah, how many of them were there? I mean, uh, every per- it seems like every person you you heard about in the track either was from North Carolina or they were the Alabama gang. There wasn't nobody else, hardly.
0: Uh, I think everybody, there was a lot of people in the Alabama gang at that time. So, But Earnhardt gets gets by means pretty quickly. He don't fight it, which is very smart. He lets him go. Bodine and Bonnet get by means. We get a little bit of green flag racing. Terry Labonte has a flat tire. He goes to the pits. And we get some more green flag racing. Earnhardt, he's checked out but Darrell Waltrip is still ahead of him by a couple of seconds, trying to stay on the lead lap. Um, 105 laps down. Earnhardt, he's still way ahead of Bodine and Bonnet. There's 12 cars on the lead lap, 105 laps into the race, 12 cars on the lead lap. This is one of those arguments that we'll have later about lead lap cars and the quality of a race. So then we get, uh, because back then the, you didn't automatically instantly get good replays. They now show a replay of Harry Gantt in that early wreck with Bill Elliott. And that was a really cool shot of the wreck from his in-car because he's sawing the wheel. He's back and forth. There's smoke. There's cars. There's pieces of metal. And he almost made it through. And, I mean, he spins out and hits the wall. But the in-car camera shot of that was really on point.
1: And, and that showed you how much skill he had as a driver. He almost made it. Well, he would have made it through if he didn't get hit from behind, yeah, somebody but he almost him. made it through with one hand on the wheel and the other and waving them off.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was a cool visual for the in-car camera. I'm glad they, they come back around to show that. So, Waltrip gets stuck behind Bobby Allison. <laughs> Earnhardt has now caught both of them. Lots of traffic. Just those three trying to get through traffic was really cool to watch because... The like I said, it's one groove on the bottom. You you can't slip up. You've got some cars that are already laps down that probably shouldn't be. Like Waltrip and Allison, they're st- trying to stay on the lead lap. They're trying to get through traffic. Earnhardt's trying to pass them because he knows if he can keep them guys a lap down, it's going to be a lot easier for him. And it's those three was really really going at it. And then we show more of the fans. Well, I mean, and they show the fans at the most inappropriate times.
1: <laughs> I, I, yes, there there is a gentleman on there, and you will see him if you watch a race. He's redheaded with a beard. Every time they have a wreck, it seems like he's the one on camera, and then they have to cut back to the wreck every time. They seem like
0: now. I don't know if he paid somebody off. If the cameraman was blowing him on the side, <laughs> I don't know what was going on. <laughs>
1: Yeah. But, but there, there had might have been an exchange of products or services, eh?
0: I don't know. Anyway, it, it's 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 just I loved the TV coverage from back then, except a few things, and that is definitely one that I did not like. Um, I really like the wide angled shots where you can see more than one friggin' car in a in a shot. They don't have they're not tight like they are today. I mean, now we've got all these great graphics and. You can see every sponsor logo on the car and every detail, but they've got them. They tighten up the camera so much. You don't see anybody else. Like then you you would see the three or four cars in front of the leader and you'd see the leader and you'd kind of see how he was trying to navigate through the field. You didn't have such a dang tight shot, which I really, I'll try not to go off on that too much, but I really like the wider camera angles. That does make a difference.
1: And another thing, it would do it give you a sense of how fast they were going at a smaller track. I mean, because the camera's following with them, and it's like you're with them. You you see the stripes going on the guardrails and all that stuff.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, we're we're still in this green flag run. Dale Earnhardt knocks Waltrip sideways. He does get by him. Waltrip hits him back, but uh, he doesn't he doesn't get back by Earnhardt. Earnhardt gets by Allison, Waltrip follows through. We're now down to six cars on the lead lap, Um, 132 laps into the race. Benny Parsons, he's talking about the Daytona 500. He said when there was a few laps to go, he decided to hang back and see what would happen. He was thinking what we were all thinking. He didn't just come out and say it, but he was definitely thinking of the um, Allison and Yarborough part two with with, uh, Earnhardt and Bodine and that's what we were kind of that's what I'm sure everybody was hoping for and that's not what we got
1: no that's not what we got but did you notice that the I don't know there was a feel to this race that even the announcers picked up on like something big is going to happen at the end we don't know what it is but something major is going to happen and is liable going to surprise everybody
0: yeah, they the, the the race. Even though we'll get into it, it does. I mean, with all the crashes they had early, and all the cars that was tore up, we do have uh, some periods of racing where it's just nah. Eh. But but there's always something going on. It's really it saved. Well, we'll get into it later. It saved basically with the Earnhardt Waltrip struggle, with Waltrip trying to get back on the lead lap. That was the main focal point of this whole race, honestly. Yeah. And
1: honest, and, and like we like we said before, they got down to six cars on the lead lap. But, but watching the race, do you think anybody cared as good as the racing was?
0: No, I mean, I mean they were. That's still, just my opinion. They were still hanging it out and doing everything they could. So I don't, I don't really think that that affected the the fans in the stands. So the race, the purse for this race was over three hundred thousand dollars. Which I mean, a Richmond Fairgrounds race in nineteen eighty six NASCAR was doing pretty good. That's all there is to it. They they That's a good – that's a really good purse. I don't know – they don't tell us what they pay now, but that seems like a fairly decent payout for, like, a Bush – or, I mean, a Xfinity race now or a truck race.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, they can't be paying out much more than that.
0: And then, uh, finally, we get our next caution, and wouldn't you know who won the pony, Kurt Brunt and Tim Richmond crash – uh, Kurt Bryant was in, he was involved in almost every accident during the day somehow. And during the commercial we have a motorsports update segment. And I like that they they don't ignore other forms of racing and you kind of get to see what was going on and you got to remember back then that's probably the only coverage you're going to get. There was no racing shows there was very little coverage of anything so that 30 second or 20 second clip you might get to see on the tbs broadcast of the nascar race is the only motocross news you're gonna get unless it's an you know another nascar race
1: oh yeah and you know you that's why they so many people going to those types of events because there was no coverage you either went and saw it live or you didn't see it
0: yeah and at the motocross, 50,000 people in Atlanta for motocross racing. That was pretty sporty. I don't know. I'm not as big of a motocross follower, but 50,000 people sounds like a pretty good uh, pretty good chunk of change.
1: Yeah, for some reason, I don't think they draw those kind of crowds anymore. But, yeah, 50,000 for any kind of event like that is pretty good size.
0: So we go. Finally, get a restart. Dell Earnhardt, Joe Rutman, Bodine, top three. Earnhardt gets the jump ahead of Waltrip. Waltrip gets back to Earnhardt's bumper. He gives him a couple of taps. Neil Bonnet and Kyle Petty. They're both having good racing or good race. Still on the lead lap. They're racing for fifth. Bobby Allison and Lake Speed have a little dust up where they're not too happy with each other. Uh, Bodine and Rutman eventually start closing in on Earnhardt and Waltrip and then Earnhardt's car starts coming in a little bit he pulls away Bodine gets by Waltrip so now Waltrip's once again a lap down with no real hope here we're almost halfway and Lake Speed hits the wall again he blows a tire no caution Uh, Earnhardt then has a problem with Dave Marcus who doesn't move over and if you know anything about NASCAR racing, everybody that talks about Ryan Newman now, about how hard he races everybody, he, was, he is the modern-day version of Dave Marcus. Dave Marcus would not move over for anybody. He felt if you, you know, it's your job to figure out how to get around him. It's not his job to move out of your way. And
1: if there would have been a yellow... Well, if you could have saw the yellow line painted at the bottom of the track,
0: he hugged that
1: sucker like it owed him money.
0: Oh, yeah. He he was on the line. And and Earnhardt and Marcus was always good friends, so Earnhardt didn't want to wreck him. He, He finally does get by him. We go to a commercial. We're back a little after halfway. We're at lap 203 now. Ken Schrader has slammed into the wall in the Red Baron car. I always liked that car. I don't know why. I just thought that was a cool-looking car, the, the Red Baron pizza car. And uh, he, he's out of the race. We, then we get an interview with Jeff Bodine's parents, who now run the souvenir trailer. And actually, that I think this is really interesting. You've got to think back to 1986. And Jeff Bodine was kind of considered a Yankee from up north, but he drives down south, and he drives for Rick Hendrick. And... I dare say, no, I know, probably at least until 88, because there's going to be, if we cover 1988, Earnhardt and Bodine get into it at Charlotte a couple of times over the Bush race and the Cup race, and it was a big deal over the Coke 600 weekend. And Jeff Bodine was more popular than Earnhardt. And that's hard to believe, but he was. Well, no,
1: it's true. Earnhardt... You got well through most of the '80s. He was—I I don't know—I'd say like the Ric Flair. He was the bad guy that the people that liked him liked him, and everybody else hated his guts because he was the bad guy.
0: Yeah. So I guess even though it seems weird, Bodine was like the White Knight, and Earnhardt was the bad guy. So yeah, Bodine's parents seemed like salt of the earth people. I, I will say that they—they they look like they're having a good time. Terry Labonte, he's back on the track. He had a piece of metal that grounded out the ignition. Now that's that's a strange situation for the ignition to be grounded. Yeah, that's out. a little old school right there. Yeah, so he's back out. And then Ken Squire, I've not said anything about it before, but if you watch this race, this will be about the eighth time that he gives his uh, undying love to Jimmy Means. I, I get it in a way. It was really cool to see Means having a pretty good run, but Ken Squire acts like he's lapped the field or something. It was, it was maybe a little misplaced. I don't know. It, I guess now, i you know what, I'm thinking about. The more I think about it, I like it because now you don't hear, you don't have any of the announcers cheer for anybody. Hey, my God, Jeff Burton's son's out there <laughs> racing, and he won't even like root his own kid on exactly. <laughs> I like it when there's a little bit of favoritism played and, and announcers don't like some of the drivers. I think that gives it a, a certain flair that we are definitely missing now.
1: Well, I mean, if you think about it, and granted, this was, you know, Folk that they were doing it for, but when you had like Ned Jarrett calling uh, Dale Jarrett in for the win at Daytona or. They're, you know DW doing it for Mikey at Daytona, it, it, yeah. They showed their favoritism and people didn't care. I mean that, that no. they give it a little spice to it.
0: I mean I don't I don't think Ken Squires related to Jimmy Means in any way. He just he just liked the guy and it's okay. I and mean, I think that's cool that you you know you, it's okay that you like somebody and if you don't like somebody else you it's okay too. we it shouldn't have to be so watered down and PG. Have a little bit of fun. So Earnhardt now he stretched the lead out um, off of this restart about a second over Bodine there's a we're down to 160 laps to go. Squire talks about Joe Rutman's heartbreak in 1982. he spins in the rain while he was in the lead and Dave Marcus wins his last race because of that. And I think it's really weird that Squire talks about Rutman's heartbreak in nineteen eighty two spinning costing him the race with what is gonna happen at the end of this race.
1: <laughs> I'm telling you, there was a psychic ability going on today. Something was
0: something weird was happening there. We have more green flag racing and then here's another sign of the times. Junior Johnson is standing on top of a tractor in the infield. <laughs> so he can see the track. And there's nothing more 1986 NASCAR than one of the biggest legends ever of the sport, Junior Johnson, standing on top of a tractor in the infield so he can see the track. That's kind of, it's just yeah. old school. And uh, and another thing I noticed when I
1: saw him on the tractor, if you look at the infield, it's row after row of old pickup trucks parked in the grass in that you know for the fans and stuff so I, yeah. I don't know It just it's pretty cool to see that
0: yeah and i don't know if they ever they're, they're probably still sitting there to this day with as much mud was in that <laughs> as muddy as it was
1: <laughs> they just... yeah they, they could have brought bigfoot out there and he'd have had fun
0: oh man so benny parsons during all this green flag racing says that he left daytona at 5 p.m after the race drove home got home about 3 a.m the following morning so we think about these guys either in their motorhomes now that, that get driven around or they're taking the private planes back and forth. I, think about that. Driving the Daytona 500 leaves Daytona at five o'clock. So, I mean, he let, he, he took a shower, jumped in the car, truck, whatever, and drove all the way to Ellerbee, North Carolina, getting home at three o'clock the next morning, There NASCAR nice for everything that it was, back then when it was gaining popularity it wasn't glamorous look at that guys i mean you don't think about that now but they were literally driving themselves and can you imagine i've often
1: wondered just how many of them got speeding tickets because you know you're driving 200 miles an hour and then all of a sudden you got to drop it down to 75 and go home
0: oh yeah and that was i'm sure that was fun for these guys So 271 laps down, we we take a commercial, we're back. Greg Sachs has spun out. J.D. McDuffie has also crashed. Somebody has fallen in victory lane and needs to be transported across the track. Now, it's not funny, but at the same time, it's just, well, we we was going to throw a caution anyway because old Billy Joe here fell down in victory lane and broke his leg. And the only way to get him out of this track, because there is no tunnels, is we have to you know wheel him across the track so we can get the ambulance out of here and that actually causes caution several times in in races back then it's not an uncommon thing
1: oh lord <laughs> i seen that and i
0: was like why they thought?" So- oh okay rusty wallace he's lost the tire out of the pits he was on the lead lap i swear to god i had not I don't know if it was like a, a cloaking mechanism or if I just didn't notice it, but this was the first time I saw Rusty Wallace this entire race, and he was on the lead lap. He just was somehow. Yeah, like there was at, only there's only five or six cars on yeah, the lead he only lap. He had eight of them, Mark. And he's 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 been on this lead lap the whole time, and I, this is the first time I see him in the race, almost three quarters of the way through. The tire, you know, it flies off and it uh, it rolls around the track and then rolls off and then falls off in the water puddle. It, there's there's a miniature Lake Lloyd inside of Richmond from all the standing water and that's where the tire lands. And in this this. Old I wonder business, if the fan got to keep it. Probably not. I I've saw people try to catch tires before and it never works out well. Luckily, he had just put the tire on and it rolled off. Cause I saw a guy try to stop a tire that's been on a car. And, uh, when he done it barehanded, he didn't have much hand left after uh, he didn't he figure that out pretty fast. Tires are kind of hot when they come off a car. And I saw an old boy. Well, yeah, at, you can see the steam. So I actually saw an old boy at bulls gap one time. He was a pit guy, uh, volunteer speedway here in East Tennessee. A tire flies off of a late model car. I don't know what he's thinking. I mean, he's he, he goes about 400, 450. So he's a big guy. This tire is barreling down the track. He walks out in front of it, and the tire has come off of a moving car, and it's, it's still going at a pretty good clip. That tire hit him. He flew about six feet in the air, and he had a tire mark all the way up his chest. It looked straight off of something like out of a movie. And he just, he just stood up and looked around and walked back into the pits. And I'm like, if that tire would have hit me, it would have killed me. This guy just brushes <laughs> it off. So it, that was in the old days, too. That, was, that happened in the 80s. So um, anyway, back to this race. Back to green, Bodine Earnhardt, still top two. Waltrip trying to get back on the lead lap. We're down to 125 laps to go. Now Waltrip, he's sticking with Earnhardt, trying to get the lap back. He finally gets under Earnhardt and passes him clean. And Bodine tries to pass Earnhardt, and he said, "No, sir," and shuts the door. And they slam into each other, and we almost have Bodine Earnhardt crash at Richmond, but they both save it. Uh, Joe Rutman's closing in on Bodine for second, and uh, Joe Rutman was in this crash with Bill Elliott. On whatever lap twenty, and his whole—he don't have a right side basically. Right rear quarter panel is all gone. That shows you aerodynamics didn't mean nearly as much in nineteen eighty-six because his car was basically destroyed, and he's still running third, running down bodine for second.
1: <laughs> yeah, he was giving him a good effort too for most of the race. I mean, it—it it wasn't like it was just a fluke or one of them had bad tires.
0: No, no. I mean, it, he had a good car. So down to 100 laps to go, Earnhardt still in the lead, back to uh, commercial break. Chris Econimacki is in the pits. He talks to Richard Childress. He says the car is good. Gary Nelson, Bodine's crew chief, says they've, they've adjusted the car too much one way or the other. They've either been too tight or too loose, and it's still not right. Lake Speed loses a right front tire, and he slams into the wall again more green flag racing back to commercial. And when we come back from commercial, Rusty Wallace is in the mud in the infield. Neil Bonnet has also crashed. Uh, We go to replay and it shows that Rusty hit Neil Bonnet went hard into the outside wall. Rusty spins into the mud on the inside. And that was a pivotal moment in the race because that puts Darrell Waltrip back at the tail end of the lead lap and Andy, when Rusty's sitting there in the grass, I swear to God, it really does look like he's sitting at Daytona there for a minute because there is water everywhere around his car. <laughs> and there's a hot shot to yeah. it, and it's like he's stuck in the mud. He's got a good car. His car's not tore up, but he's, he's stuck.
1: Yeah, you, well, you take racing slicks and you put it in a pond, it ain't going to go nowhere. So, no. yeah, and... uh you can tell he's screaming, you know, you can look at yeah. him inside the car, he's screaming at somebody to push me, push me.
0: He's trying to get anybody to get him out of there because he's losing laps as he's sitting in the pond. Uh, Daryl Waltrip back on the lap, so we cycle pit stops, Joe Ruttman's in the lead, Earnhardt Bodine, Kyle Petty, and Daryl Waltrip. Joe Ruttman launches out off the restart. He looks like a rocket. His car is fast on the restart. He he gaps everybody. Um, Waltrip gets by Bodine for third. And we start clicking off laps, and Rutman slowly but surely gets run down by Earnhardt. And as Earnhardt's running down Rutman, Waltrip's running both of them down, but he's like he's about three seconds behind at that point. And they're sliding around the turns like it's a dirt track, literally. I mean, they are turning right as much as they're turning left. Is Andy, am I exaggerating that at all?
1: not in the least bit it's you can watch them it's about a half a second turning to the left and then the rest of it's jerking it to the right just to try and keep it steady through the turn
0: it's it's crazy but Ratman he realizes um it's at that point earnhardt's caught him he don't have anything for him and I kind of expected him to put up a little bit of a fight, but maybe he just thought it's getting too close to the end of the race. There's no way I can hold him off. I'd rather not get wrecked. So he just moves out of the way. And,
1: uh, well, uh, Rutman and Walker, they had the opposite problems. Rutman, he was good on the restart, but, but he couldn't hold it over a long period. Waltrip, I don't know what was wrong with his car all day long. He on the restarts he wasn't worth a flip, and then, but he would slowly pick up speed throughout the run.
0: Yeah, and it may have just been, especially that last run. It's because he started lap basically last, and he was stuck behind some of them lap cars. And by the time he got cleared, it I don't know, but yeah, on the early run for sure every time they they come out of a caution flag you'd think walter on the inside would get a lap back but the, he would always get that he would always fall back and on the start and he never could run him back down until that last run but they kept adjusting his car all day and i think they finally got it to where he wanted it there right at the end of the race
1: yeah they definitely found the sweet spot for sure
0: so we get, we're down to 50 laps to go. Earnhardt, Rutman's right behind him. Rutman he moved over and I thought he would just fall away, but he sticks with Earnhardt there for a while and he stays with him. And Walter does catch Rutman for second. And then Rutman don't put up a fight with him either. Hey, Rutman may have been the smartest guy in the whole room thinking, well, I can't outrun him. Maybe they'll wreck. And he wasn't wrong, but he, he still wasn't lucky. So, Waltrip runs no. down Earnhardt. I mean, he runs Earnhardt down in about 10 laps, because we're down to 40 laps to go, and they're together. And they stay locked together for 40 laps. They, the, Waltrip taps him several times. Earnhardt really hugs the bottom. Waltrip never pushes too hard. He kind of just tries to wait on Earnhardt to make a mistake or catch a car in lap traffic wrong, but Earnhardt's... Don't put the wheel wrong anywhere, but Waltrip don't have any way to pass him either, so they're just kind of stuck together. And we're down to 30 laps to go. Ton of lap traffic. Squire, Ken Squire reminds us that in an event, in the event that something happens, Joe Rutman is in third and Jeff Bodine is in fourth. Ken Squire reminds dun, us dun, that dun. with 30 laps to go. So lap 372, and we go to commercial. When we come back from commercial, there's 20 laps to go. And Rutman and Bodine's actually closing in on the leaders a little. And when I say that, I, they were closing, but they was like two or three seconds behind. They wouldn't right up against Earnhardt and Waltrip, but they were running them back down from further behind. And they're hanging it out so much on the right rear. They're smoking the right rear tires, both of them. Earnhardt and Waltrip, you see right rear tire smoke almost every lap.
1: And when you're talking about how close, I mean, literally, maybe at the farthest, a foot, he is riding Earnhardt's bumper the entire race, every lap. Most of the time, they're probably swapping paint, barely. But I mean, a foot at most is all he's off his hind end.
0: Oh yeah, they're they're right together. Ken Squire says there's going to be no slingshots today, but a lot of drop kicks. So, <laughs> it's Ken Squire, hmm. Nostradamus. Has nothing on Ken Squire. So
1: we're. we're yeah, he, he needed to go buy a lottery ticket after this day was over he with. He
0: should have. Down to 10 to go. Lap traffic causes havoc. Earnhardt's forced to go to the outside of means. Uh, he does get by him. He gets sideways, but he clears him. And uh, so does Waltrip. And then we'll just let uh, Ken Squire bring, bring the action home.
2: moves in. He's running out of time. Darryl Walton running out of time. If you've been with us all the way through this, remember, I a mean, 100 laps or so ago, when Waltrip was a lap down, he threw a punch and knocked Earnhardt sideways, and then they turned around and did it the other way around. Many are they even one punch apiece, and now they'll settle it on, the, on a final lap? They're even right now. I was thinking about that a moment Ooh. ago, but they're even right now. tried to get along. They're even right now, Dave. There's, nobody's got anything coming right now. Oh, oh, they get sideways. He hit him coming off, and he hit him going in. He used up all of his bumper that time, and I thought that perhaps Earnhardt came off a little early on the on the gas that time, which is a good way of trying to break the line of the fellow behind you. Just a, here's Waldrip. Keeps him straight, but he keeps Earnhardt, on tapping. Long, now Waltrip on the inside. It. Side by side. Down to the inside. Oh, four cars, there oh, it goes. There's Bo nine into the fence. Joe Redman spins around. Who's gonna win the race? Where's Kyle Petty? Darrell Walters alongside of him. There's the hook. Bang. Bernard came down, caught the right rear of Darrell's car. There's Darrell Walters' Chevrolet, and it is torn up. Gone away. It's stalled on the back straightaway. It can't go any farther.
0: Okay, so there there we have it. I mean, wow. Andy, but they did it again. They, they did yes, it again. They did. The, they are beating the proverbial crap out of each other. They're sideways. They are finally side by side. And at this moment, some jackass in the truck decides that this is the perfect opportunity to show that dumb Redneck moron that's in the stands one more time with his main squeeze, and we miss the crash when that you hear Benny Parsons. Oh no! And they come back and they're both spinning, and you're like, "What the hell happened? What happened? <laughs>
1: They've wrecked." You've got two of, and I mean, even at this time, two of the best drivers in their class. I mean, there's there's nobody at this time better than these two. And they're bumper-to-bumper. They're side-to-side. He's just past him. You know Earnhardt is not going to let that stand. You know it.
0: And they cut away the fan. I mean, it's nothing against the fan. He may be listening. He may be a good guy. It's not your fault. I would like to find the guy that decided in the truck that this was a good idea and kick him right in the jimmy right now. I'm still (laughs) mad about that. Rochambeau right there. I mean, good Lord seriously i i don't i do not understand for a a very little second what could have possibly went through somebody's mind in the truck be like cut to the fans for the love of god cut to the fans (laughs) we've got to see the emotion no we would like to see the wreck is what we'd like to see yeah yeah
1: turn it to the fan wait a minute he stood up he stood up turn the camera turn the camera oh
0: okay so i guess here is Andy, what else? You have always been. Uh, this show, we will be as impartial as we can be about everything. I think everybody or a lot of people know that my favorite driver growing up was Daryl Waltrip. Your favorite driver growing up was Del Earnhardt, and this was a very decisive moment in my fandom. And uh, at that point, Earnhardt was dead to me, and I'm as sure was mine. <laughs> okay, but let's let's honestly take a breath and try to be impartial about this because this is a show where we're going to give you the facts and the facts is they crashed. So when we do actually get to see a replay of what happened, when when they're not showing the fan, when we actually did have a replay of what happened, I honestly think for one of the few times in his career, Del Earnhardt actually made a, a big mistake I think he tried to swing down as fast as he could to get on Waltrip's bumper to push him into the turn, and he misjudged where he was at, and he hooked him head on into the wall. I have no... I've watched this so many times. I I don't... Yes, I believe he would have tried his best to knock him back out of the way, and they may have wrecked anyway, but... Now sitting back, you know, thirty years later, when I mean, you're not when you're older and you're trying to actually watch and see what happened, I believe what happened was he tried to jump in behind Waltrip and misjudged his timing. What's your take on what happened?
1: Uh well, not exactly the same as George, but pretty close. I think he he wanted a turning. He wanted to knock him loose. Now, whether he wanted to put him straight into the wall like he did, I don't know. But I do think he wanted to hit that back fender and make him go up the hill. I think, I do believe that, like you said, I believe he misjudged it and he caught a little bit more of Daryl's car than he meant to. But I, I don't think he, went, he meant to send him head onto the wall like he did, but I do think he meant to move him out of the way.
0: Yeah, I, so I just I don't know I, and um, we'll, we'll let Earnhardt say his piece uh, Right here on what what he said about the matter
2: Who do you feel hit who on that last thing Between you and Daryl i just
0: racing I ain't gonna You know, me and Daryl's gotta race week to week I ain't nothing to it Five laps. So You know, Earnhardt said uh, But look at his body language in this interview he is not mad at all because he knows what he did. I honestly this is part of the reason why I think he may not not embarrassed. I, I don't think that's the right word. I just think that he was just so dumbfounded that he missed what he was trying to do so bad that he crashed self. Maybe that's part of it like oh God Almighty. I missed him so bad that I hit him so hard that it wrecked both of us. Like that was definitely, I mean, obviously his intention would not be to wreck himself. So that's why I thought he was trying to do like a crossover. He I mean, he, he was famous for crossovers. I just think he misjudged it that bad.
1: Yeah. Now that, that part I do agree with. I i think that's why he was mad at himself. He was like, how, how did I miss that? You know, so, you, you got a driver that can put a car within three inches of where he wants it at any given time, and he misses it by foot. Okay. And you know, like I say, he took himself out, and he took Daryl out, and he took two or three more guys behind him out. And, but I don't know. You you could tell he 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 what he was disappointed, and it wasn't one of them. He was getting ready for a fight or anything. He knew he goofed up, and I think that weighed on him a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, because him and Daryl weren't enemies at this time at all they I mean they might not have been best friends but they weren't like rivals they weren't big into each other all the time They like kind of, I think they had that respect for each other and he knew that Daryl was not going to be happy with what happened because it, that, that actually shows you also how fast they're going at Richmond when you don't realize they're going that fast look at how hard he hit the wall I mean Honestly, that could have broke your neck. That kind of a hit at a place like that—it was—it was violent. The crash was violent. Oh yeah, and you got to remember this
1: is before safer barriers, or th- that's just a metal, it's a reinforced a guardrail. metal
0: guardrail. Yeah, that's a guardrail that you could pierce yourself through too. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that can happen to guardrails, but we—we we are lost in this. So Waltrip and Earnhardt wreck, and. We don't really see how or why, but Joe Rutman. Well, actually, you can see what happened to Rutman. Uh, Walter bit the wall so hard, he's bounced halfway back down the track before it goes back up. And Rutman cuts hard left, and he gets into the infield, and there it's muddy, and he spins himself out into the infield. And I don't know what happened to Bodine. I mean, if he was right with Rutman and he, uh, all heck's breaking loose, he's just got his foot in it trying to figure out a way through it, and he spins out and hits the wall. And then all of a sudden, Benny Parsons with the iconic call, where's Kyle Petty? Because everybody yeah. else has crashed. If Kyle Petty just snakes through this, he's won, and he did. And it was a first win in NASCAR at the most uh, There's, – I'm pretty sure – besides a big wreck at the end of a race at Daytona or Talladega with somebody winning out of the blue, that's one of the few, that may be the biggest, craziest, last turn upset that you'll ever see.
1: And how much credit do you got to give Benny for the fact that this is before you had computer score timing and you know, everybody had a laptop and a cell phone and everybody could tell, you know, they had somebody in their ear telling them who was where Oh yeah. he was watching the race and knew where Petty was, knew that that was the next one in line just that quick.
0: Yeah. Immediately he's looking for Kyle Petty and Kyle Petty. I know a lot of people after this race and a lot of people bang on Kyle Petty a lot. And I never thought he's not his dad. He never was. But he was not a bad NASCAR driver, and he didn't ever drive for the best teams. Honestly, Sabco wasn't a great team when he drove for it. Felix Sabatis, and I always thought Kyle Petty was a above-average NASCAR driver. He wasn't great, but he wasn't bad. He was—he had a chance to win the title in 1992. He was one of the guys that went to Atlanta with a chance to win the title. So a lot of the people that will watch this is like, well, Kyle Petty backdoored into that. He shouldn't have ever won that race. No, no, you're right. He shouldn't have won that race. But he was one of the five cars on the lead lap. He had a good car. He was he was in the race the whole the whole race. He he just he stayed out of trouble and he kept his nose clean and he took advantage of the circumstance that was presented to him.
1: And you know when you're well, Kyle Petty and the same thing with uh, Earnhardt Jr. When your daddy is that good of a race car driver, you'll never you're really going not. to look even worse by comparison. Because they're always going always gonna compare you to your daddy.
0: Oh yeah. So, Kyle Petty, and I love this call by Chris Economaki. Let's let's get Kyle Petty's interview here, and then we'll we'll go to some more uh, closing thoughts.
2: My Kyle, you don't have to comb your hair. Get out here. Yes. Kyle Petty's getting <laughs> a proper attire on. we this foot Wood Brothers car, which uh, has been out of the winner's circle for quite some time. Come on out, Kyle, here he is, here's the winner, hey, oh, gosh. congratulations, you surprised?
0: Surprise ain't the word for it, I mean, you know, we get we worked hard all day, you know, the car pushed all day long and we couldn't get it, the motor
2: ran good, real good, but uh,
0: you know, we never got to driving right until right there at the very end and then they just drove off and left and I got caught in traffic, but... Evidently they all got to run at each other and we were lucky. Did you did you see the crash? No, I was I was in the middle of the back and I seen the smoke. I just ran up on Daddy and him and uh, him and I guess the 10 car sacks and those guys and was trying to just figure feel, feel my way around him to finish the race and looked down the corner and I seen a yellow bumper and I figured it was uh, Boat Boathein's or or, uh, or Earnhardt's. I didn't know which one it was, but we were fortunate, real lucky. Yeah, I mean
1: I- and, you know, I hate to say this, and I ain't making fun of Petty in mean, no way, but when it, when I first heard that interview, I thought he said he ran up on Diddy, and I'm like, P. Diddy? Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is 86. I got to rewind yeah, this. And then I realized he was trying to say daddy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so, Kyle, Pe- I like the conimac you, though. You don't have to brush your hair and just get out of the damn car. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah yeah a whole lot different than now you know yeah, everybody's got to be groomed and yeah call you him know, back he was like back. i've
0: been standing out here in this 45 degree weather for three and a half four hours i'm tired of this crap let's get out of here
1: yeah get out here so we can get to the heat and start doing the hat dance
0: exactly so the one one thing that i noticed after um after the race while they're they're trying to get there they tried to get walter i'm sure and they never could get him, and. Um, they did get through a couple of breaks and when they come out before, right before they go off the air, they've got a shot of the grandstands and, and and it could be because maybe the traffic is so bad. People just kind of hang around because they know they're going to be stuck in traffic. But there was a lot of people still standing in the grandstands. And I swear, I honestly think it was the, it's one of those things that anybody that saw that knew that they were in a moment. Like, when you see, I don't know. I I'm not. I've been to a few races where it's, it's I've seen good moments, but like watching on TV, like um, the Darlington race in 2003 with Craven and Kurt Busch. When I w- I was watching that race with my dad, and we watched those last five laps, and when they beat each other, and you know they come across the finish line and they're locked together, and that was a moment. I'm like, my God. I don't know if I'll ever see anything like that. And we was we talked about the end of that race for 20 minutes after the race went off. And I think the people that was in the grandstands that day knew that they had saw something special, and they were just still so they just wanted to be there. They wanted to be in that moment, and that's just so cool.
1: Well, not only that, but you got to figure from what they saw, all they know is Earnhardt wrecked Waltrip. Waltrip ain't happy.
0: Oh, yeah, see if they can find a fight. might break out.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you got all this stuff going on at one time. Nobody wants to leave because they're afraid they're going to miss. You know, like I said, it's a special moment. You know, you've got these two guys over here that obviously ain't going to be happy with each other. At that time, probably nobody really knew till they pulled the car in victory lane who won the race. So, you know, there's all kinds of things going on. Why would you leave?
0: I I, I don't know. And the, and the other thing is all, on top of that, We know because uh, Billy Joe Bob uh, broke his leg in Victory Lane, the only way to get out of that track is to cross the track. So maybe some people's waiting to get some uh, vigilante justice after the race. Let's see if we can get our hands on that (laughs) son of a bitch.
1: Now, now that wouldn't happen in the the 80s in the South.
0: What are you talking about? Oh, man. Andy, this – I don't know. I mean, hopefully – I know there's going to be more fun races in 86 to cover. Hopefully, we'll get a lot of fun sound clips, if nothing else. I, I, I think it's going to be hard to top the overall finish of that race. We may have better races as bell to bell, but the finish, I don't know if we can, if we can beat that second race into 86. That's going to be hard to top.
1: Well, as somebody that's, I guess, been a little bit burnt out on NASCAR, and not really, you know, into it as much. I turned this race on and watched it from start to finish, and next thing you know, three hours has gone by.
0: Yeah, it was fun. Wait
1: wait a minute, I just sat down. What?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's. I know a lot of it's the nostalgia factor for us. I'm I'm sure, peep kids. That was our age, now, you know, now in 30 years, if they're doing something like this, they'll have the same nostalgia about now, maybe. But it is a little more watered down now just because you have to be so politically correct. I, the the thing I like about these older races is, is a lot of it is just listening to the announcers. Just listen to them talk. Like, It's so different than what it is now. And that's not knocking the guys that do it now because they're good. They just have to be politically correct. That's just the, That's just the world we live in. Well, it
1: goes back to what you was talking about earlier. They can, they can't show any favoritism, or you know, it's got to be just cut and dry. Here's what happened, and like Beanie Parsons and Ken Squire, when those two talked, they would paint a picture. Even if you was blind, you could see. In your mind, what was going on? Even if you was not watching the race, if you was backwards turned, you knew what was going on because they could paint a picture with words.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, Andy, we'll go to uh, the post race wrap now. What, who was your driver of the race?
1: Yeah. Uh, 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 well, yeah. Yeah. Walker. Spit it out. <laughs>
0: oh, I can't. I can't. I know. <laughs> uh,
1: now, now I feel so dirty. I, I, I'm gonna have to take a shower after this is over with. But uh, when the man comes from th- what two, three laps down, yeah. and actually works it and wins the race, or had had the race won, honestly, it, how can you not give it to him?
0: Yeah, I mean, I gave it to Waltrip too, and I know it's you're going it's favoritism, but I, honestly, it's just he drove through the field a couple of times, and he he got to the lead and. He, for all intents and purposes, had it won and and got wiped out. So it's hard not to give him the driver of the race. I, I would, I, honestly, though, uh, I would um, if it wouldn't be him. I'd actually gave it to Rutman because he wrecked early with in that same wreck. Walter wrecked in, and he had a really good car. He stayed up there the whole race.
1: Yeah, you know, R- Rutman did a good job, but but Walter- he
0: was he never had a dominant car. I mean, he wasn't one yeah, that could wow. be up front.
1: What? Because you you gotta remember, Waltrip. He, I hate God. I hate to say this. Uh, he, he toyed with Earnhardt for about twenty laps. That oh. he, if he wanted to, he could have booted him or oh yeah, punted I, him I, into I, the wall or whatever.
0: I think Waltrip was just trying to be patient and hoping Earnhardt would just slip. You know, just slip off the bottom. All it would take is one one wrong turn. And the Earnhardt's credit, he didn't make any. <laughs> wrong turns it, it took Waltrip basically to that grass move out of the turn and then clipping the bumper to get him sideways enough to get under him that's uh, he, he when it come down to the end of the race and there's 10 laps to go and he's still not made a made a bad move the only way you're going to you know at that point the only way you're going to pass him is to move him
1: well i mean and even at this time uh, Earnhardt had a reputation if you moved him you better hope the end of the race is near, because he's gonna come and move you back if he gets a chance. Oh yeah,
0: so and and that's the other reason, I'm sure Waltrip was uh, was trying to not do it in a dirty way. Um, oh, before we go to the rest of the uh, the last couple of awards, there is something I want to touch on about this this whole race the the around this race. It's been an urban legend for a lot of many years. There was a a rumor that I had always believed until a couple of years ago, when I found out that it was false, Junior Johnson was set to hire Dell Earnhardt to replace Waltrip in 1987. And the rumor had always been that Junior Johnson washed his hands of Earnhardt after this particular incident in 1986, which, you know, you could believe that, but it actually turns out at the end of the day this, uh, this is how stupid Budweiser was. And, and, and this is nothing against Terry Labonte. Junior Johnson, in an interview a couple of years ago, or in a book or a magazine, I, there is a, an official interview with him where he said that that had nothing to do with it, that he was ready to bring in Del Earnhardt to replace Waltrip in 87, but Budweiser wanted Terry Labonte due to their previous relationship with him. And Junior Johnson says, looking back, he had went in 87 he went back to a one car team he said looking back i still should have hired earnhardt and tried to find a sponsor so man could you imagine how much different nascar would have been if if dale earnhardt goes to junior johnson in 1987 we we'll, we can talk i mean you know that's not this is not 1986 but it is a direct correlation to this race a rumor that went on for so many years so i thought that'd be interesting to talk about
1: well, you've got to figure I mean, you've heard it I mean, you've heard it said before and I have too. Junior Johnson was one of those owners that would rather have fifteen wins than a season championship. Yeah.
0: He wanted to win Hart.
1: Yeah, Earnhardt wanted to win every race he was in. Now, if you put those two together, what kind of chaos or, you know, greatness would come out of it? It'd be one of the two, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's just – I mean, really, one of the biggest what-ifs in NASCAR. Imagine that. So, 1987, having Dale Earnhardt as part of a two-car team on Junior Johnson's car, and then who would – I mean, that's just – I wrote an article for On Pit Road that people could go back and look at um, called The Butterfly Effect, 1987. What happens if Dale Earnhardt goes to Junior Johnson? And I tried to break down where everybody would land, and there were some really interesting landing spots for guys – I mean, I don't know if it would have been accurate, but it was fun to, it was a fun little scenario to try to go through. But just to think about Dell Earnhardt at Junior Johnson racing in 1987 and how much different NASCAR would have turned out but just because of that, it was, it'd was it be marketably different than it is now.
1: But when Junior came around, they didn't make the same mistake twice with Budweiser, so...
0: <laughs> no, no, they secured Budweiser that second go around, so... Um, andy r- race race rating uh, on that zero to 100 scale like the race itself what do you give the race uh the race itself i'd have to go about
1: 85 it was it, it was so good i'm tr- i'm knocking myself down a little bit because i'm trying to eliminate the nostalgia factor or mm-hmm. else I'd, put, I'd probably put it higher but about 85 is what i'd have to put it at
0: yeah, I, I get, actually gave it an eighty-two, kind of for the same reason. It, it if they wouldn't have had the wreck early that took out Rudd, uh, Gant, um, Elliott, some of them guys, I think the race could have been even better. Right? I mean, we may not have had that finish though. It would have, it would have been a completely different race. But it really took out three or four really good cars early in the race, and it does hurt the race in the middle parts where it's it drags a little bit but it never really gets boring because during that whole middle part of the race Waltrip is trying to get his lap back really the whole story this entire race is can Waltrip get his lap back because if he does he's got the fastest car on the track besides Earnhardt we knew this I mean that so that really carried the race was Waltrip trying to get the lap back
1: Well, and this, I mean, I listen to a lot of wrestling podcasts, and this reminds me of what a lot of the bookers talk about. You've got the first part of the race where you set up the story. Then the middle part of the race is, well, even if it's Walter, it's the hero's journey to try and come from underneath, you know, the underdog. And then at the end, you have the swerve that catches all the fans off guard. I mean, it it just
0: fit perfect. It it does seem like a wrestling scenario for sure. So um entertainment factor on the zero to 100 i mean we gave the race you say 85 i say 82 um entertainment factor i say 95 it it, i probably could go higher but i'm trying to pull myself down a little bit because i don't want to watch a race later and be like well i was way more entertained with this race than that and have somewhere to go up but you you can't be much more entertained than what you see in this race
1: yeah, I had I had to go with a 98 because if if something else comes up better than this, I'll, I'll go above the 100. I'll go 100 plus 10 or something because you have a you you have so much going on. You have a guy Rex get stuck in a pond. You've got people crashing out all over the place. You got Earnhardt hanging out the car. It, it had everything.
0: It, it did. I mean, it really did. I mean, I honestly think 95 is a little low, but I, I just. You don't want to say too high, it's, but that the, uh, the Benny Parsons' call at the end of that race when they all crash, I mean, it was God, it was so, you've got, people just go back and if you don't watch anything else, watch those last 10 laps, because when we get, when we're looking at these people in the stands when they're actually crashing, you hear Parsons <laughs> yell and you hear somebody behind him in the, I don't know if it was one of their spotters or what, but you can hear them like, oh, God. I mean, everybody's yelling. And pars it's just pandemonium. It is complete chaos. We don't have complete chaos in NASCAR anymore, but that was complete chaos.
1: Yeah,
0: ha- they—they goes
1: back to how good Beanie Parsons was that he caught it before the engineer, or the cameraman, or the guy that behind, behind him that hollered out, "Oh God!" and yeah. you know he called it, he saw it, and then he knew Petty was the next
0: one in line. That just amazed me. Yeah, he, he says all four of them crash. Where's Petty? Where's Kyle Petty? I mean, that's this is an it's an iconic call. Honestly, it gets yeah. overlooked. And if you're watching it, and if you're watching the race, you're like, I didn't even know
1: Petty was racing. What? Yeah. What? Who? <laughs> The richard's boy <laughs> he's in this race yeah. yeah richard's been like 30 laps down because he wrecked he ain't gonna win the race. oh kyle okay yeah where's he at
0: oh man so i guess um there's not a lot more we can say about it. go back and watch this race andy uh a uh, uh, little housekeeping next week hopefully we'll try to get another episode out and we already know the race at Rockingham until recently didn't even have any coverage on YouTube or anywhere that was easy to find. And someone has uploaded a 40-some minute clip, but it's not a good quality. I mean, they, they tried. I'm, I'm glad it's out there, but it's not. we're not going to be able to review the, the, uh, the Rockingham race like we did Richmond. So what we're going to do next week is we will talk about the Rockingham race, what happened, try to get any insight that we can on it. But we do have a good quality video on YouTube of the Atlanta race following Rockingham. So we'll talk about Rockingham and we will go flag to flag for the Atlanta race. And I already know there is one clip that nobody has probably ever talked about. And it is a clip with Harry Hyde, who is Tim Richmond's crew chief, going off uh, about a call in the pits. And it is hilarious. It's good stuff that I'd say nobody's talking about. So we're going to bring that one to light next week. We'll, We'll go flag to flag in Atlanta, and that should be a fun show.
1: Oh, most definitely, yeah. I, I know the clip you're talking about, and when we get to it, everybody better put a, the pins or something on because you will laugh hard.
0: Yeah, I mean, Harry Harry Hyde's one of these people that don't care what he says, and when you stick a microphone in somebody's face to, and they're <laughs> mad, you're going to get what Harry Hyde said. So we, uh, we'll wrap this one up. I mean, great Richmond race, so fun to go back and review. Hope you enjoy it. Follow us again on Facebook, Racing Through Time. We've got a group that we're just starting. We'll post stuff there. Twitter at OPR Word. Um, you can email the show if you have a comment you'd like us to read on the air or talk about the show, something that we can uh, that you want to go over to talk about. You can email the show at RacingThroughTime.com. Project all spelled out. So it's racing through time project at gmail.com. Or you can just comment in our Facebook group. Uh, We'll definitely try to read some comments on the air. You can recollect with us. What uh, about this Richmond race or about the Atlanta race coming up? And we'll, uh, we'll try to, we'll try to get some, some viewer comments on the air the next go round.
1: Yes. You get in touch with us. We'll touch you right back.
0: And for that, I am Ricky Wittenberg, and for The Hot Pocket, Andy Waddell, another racing through time in the books.